This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Jerome Corsi, thank you for joining me in the trenches. My pleasure. Look, looking forward to the discussion. Thank you. Um, I was just saying to you a moment ago, um, I'm often accused of being disrespectful when I drink alcohol in front of my guests. I'm drinking a whiskey right now, a scotch. Is that, a, is that disrespectful won't, to you? Won't bother me. I'd be happy to join you in one. It's a little, little early here today for me to do that, <laughs> but I'd be happy to. <laughs> um, are, you a, are you a scotch drinker yourself? I used to be very much so. More wine these days. As I got yes. older and get older, it, the um, hard alcohol doesn't process as well. So I've switched mostly to wine. And I've drunk a lot of wine in my time. And I enjoy it and don't plan to give it up. And Cape Town is the home of great wine. I had some there. It was very good. And, I, and they sell the uh, Australian wines and, the, and South African wines now in stores in the United States. And I typically buy some of both and um, enjoy should. them both. <laughs> I think wines, are, wines are magnificent in, in South Africa. They're really excellent. Yes, and, that uh, is. In fact, I think we, when I was there, we went to one of the vineyards. I don't remember precisely which one, but it, it's um, South Africa has many a absolutely stunning aspects to it, and a politics which is extremely difficult and probably going to get worse. Yeah, but of the few things that we have going for us, wine is one of them. Well, no, no question about that. And <laughs> Cape Town is a magnificently beautiful place. I mean, it's it, it is amazing to see the two oceans come together and uh, standing at the tip of Cape Town. And I've done that. And um, it, it's just all around a beautiful city. And it's, it's a beautiful country. And I enjoyed being there uh, and regret that the politics is so difficult. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know your background, Jerome, what is it? I'm not sure anybody will ever put together my entire background. It's not really important. I, I have a PhD from Harvard um, in political science when I was 25. Had a very diverse background. I spent uh, time in universities, did a lot of federally funded research. Did research with randomized uh, field tests, controlled experiments. I published articles on terrorism and game theoretic journals. I've done a lot of publishing in my life. Published my first books when I was in college. And um, I spent a, a considerable period of time in financial services, worked with banks around the world to introduce insurance products and investment products. Uh, banks have, are typically terrible at sales and they are um, usually leave unattended a whole classification of financial service needs of their customers. So I built businesses doing just that, teaching banks how to be more interactive with their customers and sell actually sell insurance, annuities, uh, mutual funds, investments, et cetera. And I did that for quite a while, maybe 25 years. Uh, and I've also, you know, I've just had a very, very diverse background. And I, since 2004, have been writing books in politics. I've written now over 25. I don't have the exact count. I'd have to go back and put it all together someday. But the, um, I'm conservative. And I, I'm opposed to the neo-Marxism and the 
cultural Maoism that is sweeping the world right now. And uh, this book on climate change, uh, I think, is probably uh, I've at this point in my life decided to really write more thoughtful books, more legacy books. I don't know if they'll even be much read in the current environment. Certainly they'll be suppressed. I'm not even sure Fox News will interview me. Fox News won't interview me on this climate book because they're afraid of opposing the, you know, this intolerant leftist agenda. And uh, we have experience in this country that was involved you know, with the uh, Mueller investigation because of I had you know, ties in 2016 to Donald Trump and they thought I had information about Julian Assange, which I didn't. And they were threatening to um, indict me for lying. I refused to take their plea deal and um, I was not indicted. So it was they were the criminals. The the federal government's Justice Department is now a political enforcement arm of the Democratic Party. And uh, that's we are rapidly losing our constitutional freedoms. And so I wrote this book to try to explain the neo-Marxism behind the current climate change movement is a movement aimed at destroying capitalism. That's its fundamental purpose. And uh, the, the core of the book, the, you know, it's a, a, a book is almost 400 pages and it's got a thousand footnotes in it. And by the way, as I was saying to you off the air, uh, we've just sold out the, the hardcover and made a decision not to print any more hardcover. Uh, I think Amazon has about six of them left. Uh, the paperback is available and it's cheaper and I want more people to read it. So we're going to cut our margins and eliminate the hardcover and go entirely to paperback, uh, ebook and aud and audiobook and uh, you know trying to get more people to read this. And I'm very pleased to be on your show and others because about all that's left, in telling, as this book is, you know, the truth about uh, energy, global warming, and climate change in an age of disinformation and exposing climate lies, the age of disinformation, that's what the book is about. And um, it, it's impossible to have a debate or to get media if you're not on the woke agenda, which is, I think, a, a tremendous loss, not only in human freedom, but a loss in uh, the ability of human beings to advance, mm. because I think we need to confront our ideas constantly in order to make sure that you know we're developing properly. New information will always require resorting, especially in science, resorting through ideas, coming up with new paradigms. And um, I, I think what we're currently in is a very value relative world that um, you know you're supposed to have the right to be anything you want to be, and everybody's got to respect that. And so, um, in the next book I'm writing, to be the truth about this neo-Marxism, it'll be second in the. You can see it's the Great Awakening series. I'm planning to write three, and the second one will be the truth about the neo-Marxism, the cultural Maoism, and the anarchy. <laughs> uh, I think it's basically a schizophrenic period of time. The schizophrenics are in charge as the agenda that we don't know what gender identity is and that uh, all of these redefinitions of social justice are uh, quasi the postmodernism, quasi schizophrenic. 
uh, because you can do you can be whatever you decide you are, yeah. and um, you you live in this imaginary world of your identity, and so it's very subjective and I think very dangerous. But again, it's an intolerant period of time that we're living in, and I'm doing my best to at least expose it. I don't know whether we'll beat it. My mm-hmm. books may be read after I'm gone, uh, assuming that human freedom is recovered. Well, and I'm not I'm not 100% sure it will be. Well, for what it's worth, um, your work is traveling. I mean, here I'm talking to you from the bottom tip of the African continent, and uh-huh. and I'm reading your work. I, I find that that has happened increasingly, and um, I'm pleased about that. I, I think my work is going to become almost of a, a kind of cult you know, work in that it's suppressed and that there will come a time, I, I do believe, when it will be read. But I hesitate to think what we're going to go through next with the um, World Economic Forum combining with the neo-Marxists in charge. And these people typically produce world wars, which I think they're in the process of doing again. They're capable of destroying, but they're not very capable of building. And I think it's actually has kind of a biblical root to it in that uh, they're trying to put themselves on the throne of God. You know, transhumans uh, fundamentally agree with Satan in the Garden of Eden. You know, God's dead, we're in charge, and we can do a better job than God did. So let us rule things now. And um, that's where I think we are globally. Yeah, I mean, I I start, and this book has covered a lot of ideas which are uh, controversial because Mm. they, I think, they're true. This is one of the more controversial ideas in the book because the current predominant idea is oil is a fossil fuel, which means basically that it's organic. The idea of fossils is pretty silly to begin with because fossils are not the living animal. They're typically the silicon that is filled in the bone structure and get the bone structure of the animal, but not any of the living tissue. So the idea that fossils created fuels patently ridiculous you know it's but the point is it's like saying climate deniers you know well no one really denies that there's a climate (laughs) they're denying that the carbon dioxide is this poison that's going to cause global warming and so therefore it's another demonization which the left is good at doing but let's go into the fossil fuel Uh, i start by usually trying to make the point the organic material of any kind, whether it's bacteria, plankton, plants, uh, animals, human beings, any living tissue, does not deteriorate into a higher form of energy. That would violate the second law of thermodynamics. Second law of thermodynamics is easily understood as uh, kind of a winding down of energy. It's not a building up of energy. So when something dies, it goes to a lower form of energy. When people die, they're going to stink because they're decomposing. We bury them, and we don't put uh, plastic in the casket because the person's going to turn to oil. It's not an expectation. The Bible says dust to dust. It doesn't say dust to oil. So this idea that you can take decomposing organic material and turn it into oil is a misconception that goes back two or three hundred years. Uh, the I, I point out that during World War II, before World War II, in the Weimar Republic, 
and I have if I go to the chapter in here on I read a whole chapter by the way on this one. It's called abiotic oil because you know, abiotic means not biological. In the um, Weimar Republic, a group of German chemists decided how to synthesize um, oil, make it art of manufacture oil essentially, because Germany had a lot of coal. But it lacked petroleum, it lacked oil. And so therefore, between world wars, uh, the Germans decided they needed to get uh, tank diesel fuel, they needed to get airplane fuel, they needed to get uh, gasoline. And so their only choice, their best choice, was to find out how to turn some of this coal into oil. Um, now, what they did was they got the equations together which are called the Fischer-Tropsch equations. Those are two of the main chemists, a guy named Fischer and another guy named Tropsch, F-I-S-C-H-E-R and T-R-O-P-S-C-H, two German scientists. And what they did is they found out that through a, a catalytic process, they could take coal and under pressure and, uh, and heat, uh, they could do this catalytic reaction that generated uh, hydrocarbon chains. And they found that they could produce a wide variety of hydrocarbon chains. I actually, in the book, give you, you know, the, the book's not a chemistry book, but I give you enough of the chemistry where you can understand what these equations do. And I explain how the catalytic process works in, in terms, I think a non-chemist can read and follow. But the point is, uh, Germany actually had a lot of, synthetic oil fisher troughs plants in World War II. We bombed them all. If you'll recall or the studying of the World War II at the Battle of the Bulge at the end of the World War II, the Germans still had plenty of tanks. They had plenty of Messerschmitts airplanes. They ran out of fuel because we had bombed their uh, synthetic fisher troughs plants and we bombed their oil and chemical uh, facilities. That was the only thing in World War II that really made any difference with the bombing. Strategic bombing study at the end of World War II proved that, and I've been reading that for a long time. At any rate, with this Fischer-Tropsch process, it defines a process that goes on in the mantle of the Earth. So essentially, you've got some something that contains hydrogen and something that can, contains carbon. You've got intense pressure and intense heat and the presence of a catalyst, and the catalyst can be, for instance, iron, and the inner earth has all of these elements available, and I go through the book and describe inner earth and why all these are available. The mantle of the earth is where oil, the natural gas, and all the other hydrocarbon chains are produced. And Thomas Gold, who was a very brilliant scientist, uh, he lived until the, I guess, until through the 60s, he taught ultimately at Cornell, very brilliant man, and he had unconventional ideas like, as do I, I'm not bound by the typical paradigms. So he had, he had postulated that at the bottom of the oceans, there was a deep, hot biosphere. In other words, there were these deep sea chimneys you know, that vented out hydrocarbons from the mantle of the earth. And the hydrocarbons were actually supplying food. There were organisms living on this hydrocarbon, uh, venting gas. 
And there was no light down there, so they weren't living on photosynthesis. And uh, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, and I cite the articles, went and studied these vents, these ther- the hydrotherms, they call them, and uh, found that uh, there was the abiotic hydrocarbons were exuding out of these hydrotherm chimneys, just like Thomas Gold said they would. And they were produced by, manufactured by the Fisher-Trops process. They published that, I believe, in an article uh, in Science. And um, this was a revolutionary, it was the very first time that we had a publication, a group of credible scientists who validated that the mantle of the Earth is producing abiotic hydrocarbons. And, you know, I took it further. I then said, okay, well, I went and got the tectonic studies. Because, you know, we have a lot of oil in the Gulf of Mexico and Saudi Arabia, and that interested me. Well, in the Gulf of Mexico is where this huge asteroid hit in 65 million years ago, which destroyed the dinosaurs, was part of the reason the dinosaurs died. And um, it deeply fractured the bedrock in the Gulf. Up through those bedrock fractures, the oil was was seeping and pocketing in sedimentary rock, not created by the sedimentary rock. That's where our petrogeologists make a, get it confused. The oil's there, but it's, it's, and underneath the oil fields in Saudi Arabia, you can see that they are directly on top of a series of bedrock faults in the deep earth of, of Saudi Arabia. So I used to argue with a guy named Matthew Simmons in the 90s one of the peak oil guys who said, well, only so many fossils, only so many, so much fossil fuel, we're going to run out. And I said, and Matt Simmons wrote a book called Twilight in the Desert about Saudi Arabia running out of oil. That was the, that was the vogue in the 90s. And I basically said, You're, it's nonsense. These people demonize me and a lot of exchanges. Of course, now the peak oil guys are all gone because Donald Trump demonstrated that um, we can have plenty of oil, natural gas. We can even lead the world in exporting it again. Whereas the uh, peak oil guys were convinced we would be out of oil by now. Be all gone. Has not happened. It will never, mm. I don't think it will ever happen. I think I, I, someone else I write about in this book was Julian Simon. He's a very brilliant um, sociologist, really, who started studying population, demographics, uh, also energy. And he argued, I think correctly, that um, the principles of energy are, first of all, we always think we're running out. So in the 1850s, they, in Great Britain, they thought they were running out of coal. They were worried about not being able to fuel the Industrial Revolution. So uh, Julian Simon's first point is there's always more of it than you think there is. The second point was that as technology advances, we can recover energy resources like oil or natural gas at you know levels and, and extracted in ways that were not previously economically feasible to do. The technology makes it feasible to do. So now we have deep ocean drilling where we're going down five or 10,000 meters that are just water and then drilling deeper into the earth from the bottom of the sea what we do in off of Brazil. It's what we do in the Gulf of Mexico. And we're finding abundant oil. I mean, Brazil 
thought they had no oil until they found this offshore drilling made them a leader in production of oil. Venezuela, there's other countries that have found, uh, I'm sure you could find oil throughout the ocean bed. It was, so far, we've only done deep sea drilling off the coasts because it's, again, economically feasible. It's more difficult to do uh, deep sea uh, uh, drilling for anything in the middle of these great oceans. North Sea, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, the coasts of the continents, we're finding abundant hydrocarbon fuel. And they haven't, they haven't run out in the Middle East. Um, I, no. remember them, I remember them saying in the 90s that they were going to run out. Uh, I said to Matt Simon, Matt Simon and I actually exchanged emails. I mean, and we debated with each other on these uh, peak oil forums. And uh, he was convinced we were going to run out. I said, no, Saudi Arabia doesn't really know how much oil they've got. Mm. They have no clue. What they know is they keep abundantly pumping it. And it's still there. And, you know, again, they, the mistake of thinking that this is fossil fuel and it can only be made that as, as this, if it were cooked in sedimentary rock, and I used to challenge them on that, except they have, well, it becomes this mushy rock, which they call kerogen. And that's, a, that's an intermediate form between sedimentary rock and oil. It's becoming oil. I thought that was just nonsense. I said, why don't you, in a laboratory, show me what kerogen looks like? Well, no one ever could. Mm. No mushy, mushy soil. I mean, it's, you know, that's... Then they said, well, it's really not just fossil fuel. and It's not just... It, it has to be deposited in, in swamps so that the tissue's still there. And that's what deteriorates into oil. I said, well, you know, of all the life on Earth that has died... A very marginal amount of it dies in swamp conditions. And so, therefore, the vast majority of everything on life and Earth, when it dies, goes back into the constituent chemicals. It's decomposition. And so, again, you know, I've argued this uh, because, again, I, it, it's part of the argument I'm making that carbon is part of the life cycle. In other words, instead of demonizing carbon dioxide, we've got to realize that carbon dioxide, we exhale carbon dioxide. Plants can't survive without carbon dioxide. They, that's part of the nutrient for a plant. And plants then emit oxygen, which again is part of this natural cycle. Uh, the uh, Earth, is, scientists will say, is 4.6 billion years old. 80% of that time, first 80% of Earth's existence, there was no life on the surface of the Earth. Carbon dioxide was much higher concentrations. Uh, the Earth was warm and you know, was not fit for life on the surface. Life started in the planet, and it took this, you know, billions of years. I believe it started with the hydrotherms coming up in the ocean and also coming up through the soil and nourishing bacteria and other forms of life that were in the soil. I don't think life began on Earth with photosynthesis. I think that took millions or billions of years to develop and developed out of these organisms which lived in the soil or in the bottom of the sea, which learned how to develop photosynthetic, photosynthetic capabilities. So if we eliminate 
instead of demonizing uh, carbon dioxide, we should look at it as a vital part of the car. We, we're partly carbon, not carbon in bodies. In the human, it's not a noxious element. And greenhouse gases are not dangerous. It, the earth wouldn't exist without greenhouse gases. By the way, uh, carbon dioxide is only 0.04%, four one-hundredths of 1% one of the atmosphere. Water vapor is much more abundant as a greenhouse gas. Probably 70% of all greenhouse gases is water vapor. And um, water vapor may account for as much as 90% of the greenhouse gas effect on Earth. Greenhouse, we wouldn't survive on Earth without the greenhouse gas effect because you know, another fundamental thing is hard for the left to understand is, you know, sun heats Earth. It's a hard concept. They want to demean the sun's importance. But if you go outside and you look at that big yellow thing up in the sky, it, it's not a tree ornament. It's called the sun. And when the planet revolves, as it does every 24 hours approximately, um, and you're at nighttime, we call it night because it's dark. <laughs> and it's dark because there's no sun in the sky. At that point, the infrared energy, which the Earth has absorbed during the day, that, that's the part of light that produces heat, infrared um, vibrations, and that's, that's where the heat comes from. The Earth itself will emit infrared radiation and will go back into outer space. The greenhouse gases capture enough of the infrared energy that the Earth stays relatively warm. And uh, it's a very complex process because the you know clouds also clouds are not water vapor clouds are not precisely water vapor water vapor is in the atmosphere when you don't recognize it's in the atmosphere when it's clouds is forming aerosols and uh, cloud formation is a transformation of water vapor into a cloud structure different physical property of h2o and um they act as shields also to make sure the earth doesn't get too hot because they more clouds typically form when it's warmer and they block the infrared radiation from reaching the earth. So neither greenhouse gases nor carbon dioxide are noxious. They're all natural processes and uh, we're not releasing ancient carbon dioxide by burning fossil fuel because it's not dead anything which was, you know, composed in its in original state. Now we're releasing that there's that religion that original state as we burn the dead animals in oil. There are so many absolute bad ideas. Yeah. In climate science, and Julian Simon said, you know, why do people believe all this bad information about weather? And I think it's because there's a fundamental insecurity about human beings, and that we know we're going to die. That, that, by the way, has not been told to the transhuman group among the World Economic Forum. They believe they can live forever. They can believe they can rule the earth better than God did. And if they get their chance, we'll all be living in hell. But beyond that, the um, idea that you know, these are uh, demonic forces, that there's something wrong with carbon dioxide, there's something wrong with greenhouse gases, is fundamentally... Uh, someone who should have failed climate science 101. But it is at the core of the ideological principles of science, 
which is what the International Panel on Climate Change of the ICC, IPCC of the United Nations, that's the only kind of science they will allow is ideologically driven science. Mm. And at its heart is demonizing carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is picked because hydrocarbon fuels do emit carbon dioxide. And if they can demonize carbon dioxide, saying you're going to, you know, to children, you're not going to be able to have an adult life because mommy and daddy are putting at horrible gasoline in the car. Yeah. They're ruining your future. Well, we couldn't demonize it. You know, that we're, that is a reason to get rid of hydrocarbon fuels. You know, if you're all going to die, no matter what you have to do, you might as well do something. Stop using hydrocarbon fuels. So the neo-Marxists have found this is a very, very good argument to destroy capitalism. Probably yeah. better than Marx ever came up with because Marx's ideas by 1848 didn't work. The revolutions going on didn't turn out to be forming communist utopias in 1848. Monarchies largely persisted and adapted, and the workers were taken care of through labor unions and other concessions, uh, so that the labor unions, you know, prevented a lot of Marxism from Marx. Marx's ideas were fundamentally wrong. Yeah, but yet the Marxists continue to try to find the silver bullet around which they can destroy capitalism because it's fundamentally an argument for an elite to gain control. That's what Marxism is all about. And then to get rid of the people who got them there, mm. which is the first thing that the Stalinists do. It's the first thing that the Maoists do. It's the first, the, the woke generation may destroy uh, advanced industrial economies, may destroy the culture, but in the end, if they succeed, and the, uh, the winners will be the World Economic Forum billionaires and millionaires running the multinational corporations and the trust funds, and they will make sure to eliminate the woke mm. people because they will be the biggest problem. They don't want any more destruction. Now they want control. And that's <laughs> always been the evolution of every communist revolution. So right. this, is about, this, is about to, this is about demonizing carbon dioxide, which makes absolutely no sense from a scientific uh, point of view. And that's a long way of answering, but I really wanted to give a more detailed explanation. Yes of why hydrocarbon fuels, why it's reasonable to think that they are not fossil fuels. The post-Weimar Republic Germans figured out that in order to sustain their uh, war attempts, they could actually uh, develop oil, manufacture oil? Synthetic oil. Right. Synthetic. Made up. Created. Not by alchemy. Germany mm. had a lot, a lot of hydrocarbon a lot of fisher traps plants and when we were bombing you know the allies were bombing europe we targeted their fisher first we went after things like the ball bearing we had a schweinfurt raid deep into germany and we lost a lot of planes and we found out that the germans still were making as many airplanes as they were before we bombed schweinhardt because they could diversify where the ball bearings were manufactured and they could make the planes put them together in different locations they repaired the factories very quickly. All we could really do that made a difference in the German war effort was to bomb their chemicals and their energy, their oil. Because, and Germany was getting oil, predominantly Fischer Tropsch process, making it synthetically. And then Germany had places like in Romania, where we, you know, we bombed the Pileski airfields 
which the Germans were after Ukraine because it was energy, oil rich. Uh, they wanted to, uh, was one of the first targets in invading Russia when um, Hitler decided in 1941 he didn't want to do it. The pact with Stalin any longer. Hitler attacked Stalin before Stalin could attack Hitler. Uh, they were at each other's throats from the beginning because the communists and Nazis were both socialists and they've been fighting the streets of the Weimar Republic for control. The communists lost and the Nazi National Socialists won. Fascism was a leftist movement, not a not from the right. But the point is, in World War II, Germany still was manufacturing t- tanks. They were still manufacturing airplanes. They had um, a lot of scientific processes going on. Werner von Braun, who we brought over to run our space program, was uh, using Jewish slave labor to build V-1 and V-2 rockets to launch against Britain. He was preparing the first ballistic missile structure that would carry an atomic bomb if Heisenberg had succeeded in developing one. He didn't. Uh, But at any rate, Russia was very advanced industrially, but without oil, without the chemicals you need to, you know, produce energy, the, the engine stops. Now, that's fundamental to why Marxists want to have climate change, because if they can convince us to go voluntarily into slavery, to voluntarily eliminate the use of hydrocarbon fuels as decarbonize, then we shut down. We sh- we shut down. We shut down the the fuel that is the engine of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And without capitalism, you're not going to support the billions of people who are in the world today. They depend. You know, we went from 1960 to few billion people, like 3 billion to today, 8 billion. And we can support that. It's one of the most productive times in life. It's also one of the warmer and more life-supporting on the planet than ever. We should be grateful for this period of time, not demonizing it. But those who want to destroy this abundance in order to establish themselves in control go back to an oligarchical control where the rest of us are useless in the serfs in a new feudal system. That's basically what their World Economic Forum concept boils down to. Uh, They believe by demonizing hydrocarbon fuels, we will abandon uh, the use of the fuel needed to get capital, will destroy capitalism. That's their goal. So the science is fraudulent because First of all, I also spend a great deal of time in the book describing how hydrocarbon fuels are a much more efficient form of fuel. I mean, if you, if you measure energy in terms of joules, which is one of the scientific measurements of energy, hydrocarbon fuels you combust, that has a very high energy potential because of the combustion is, you know, the, a, a powerful force of energy. That's how the energy is converted know, from the hydrocarbon liquid to oil or natural gas or whatever, the liquid form, natural gas, into energy. Whereas solar and wind have to, are, have to be stored, their electricity, they have to be stored to battery. Well, you lose power storing it. You have to get all kinds of you know, rare minerals, which are expensive and have to be produced by typically hydrocarbon mining like lithium, etc., to produce the batteries. And then the sun doesn't shine all the time, the wind doesn't blow all the time, and 
winter, another, you know, big wake up call for the left. Uh, there is less sun in the winter because the tilt of the earth is away from the sun. So it tends to get um, light later in the morning. It tends to get dark earlier in the evening, depending on how f far you are in latitude. Uh, you may have 24 hours of darkness in the winter in Alaska or close to it. Okay, so that's another phenomenon of the earth that the left is largely does not want to explore. They want to see everything as stable, except for the industrial age that caused us to destroy the planet with uh, the industrial activity. In other words, capitalism is their demon. They want to demonize capitalism. And that's what this is all about. But the science does not support that because, in fact, hydrocarbon fuels are robust, plentiful, and cheap. Sun is intermediate, expensive to store, doesn't produce as much energy. Same with wind. So in the winter, not only is there less sun, so your solar batteries are absorbing less energy, but it's also cold. You know, that's climate change out. Yeah, summer, fall, winter, spring, it's climate change. And in winter, it's cold. And wind turbines freeze. So they don't blow to produce energy very well. And that's when you need it the most. If you say we can all endure hot, you don't really need air conditioning. You know, when I was young, we didn't have air conditioning as universal availability. Uh, and nobody had a problem with it. You know, you had, you, things slowed down in the summer. But um, winter, if, if we don't have hydrocarbon fuels in Europe this winter, because of Russia cutting off the natural gas, they're going to freeze. The bad winter, you know, they're already cutting down forests in Germany for fireplace wood, and they're lining up the coal manufacturing plants where to produce industrial-grade coal to get enough to take home to have coal to burn in the winter in their homes. And people know they're going to die uh, or freeze. You know, We really don't want... If you had a choice between global warming and global cooling, choose global warming all the time. Because, you know, when it's really cold, we um, end up huddled up and not able to go outside, not able to grow anything, less light, less able to move around. Uh, people lived in caves, and but I assure you it was not the little carbon fires of the cave dwellers who eliminated the glacial periods. Uh, they, their carbon fires were insignificant. So again, the the whole hoax of global warming and climate change are predicated on people not knowing how to not not only not knowing the science, but not knowing how to reason the science, not knowing how to read the science, not knowing how to go to the peer review articles and see what they're about. But um, you know, an uneducated population is easier to fool with a mass delusion. And it's happened over and over again in human history, and it's happening right now. It's one of the biggest mass delusions phenomenon in human history. Okay, so World War II ends, and uh, Germany is defeated, and the U.S. military is now in Germany occupying it. We bring in military intelligence. 
military intelligence knew that the Germans had advanced science. So the first task is to go and get as much of the science that they can, including the atomic projects, the UFO projects, the alternative energy projects. Germany was working on a lot of very advanced things in the 1930s and 20s. Uh, and also the Fischer-Tropsch equations. And then the second thing we did is an Operation Paperclip. Uh, our genius CIA began uh, deciding that certain Nazi scientists were denazified and they brought them over here to work. That's how Werner Braun got here. He was a war criminal. He used Jewish slave labor to build V-1 and V-2 rockets to hit Great Britain with. So if we got that information, we had that information, what we did at the end of World War II is we actually built some Fischer-Tropsch plants in the United States. I document that. But when you could get abundant oil, natural gas out of the ground, it was just too expensive to make synthetic oil, too, too costly. So they weren't economically viable. They worked. And in Germany, when you had no real alternative, the government was willing to spend the money to get the petroleum products to to, to fuel its war machine. And uh, they, you know, a large part of the strategy of World War II was Germany trying to um, make sure it had occupied foreign countries, a Poland they weren't too interested in except to get rid of the Poles. But Romania and other countries, including Ukraine, they were very interested in the Nazis because they had oil. A lot of Nazi oil came out of Polesti, Romanian oil field, and the Hungary. These countries were more rich in oil. And we bombed the Polesti airfields from North Africa. And um, at the end of World War II, we had done enough bombing of them that Germany was running out of oil and natural gas. They had no more fuel. Uh, that was a key element. But we did... See, the American people were never told about this. It's been kind of a secret. I doubt very many people listening to this program had no idea that Germany made synthetic oil. The whole idea of synthetic oil, if it comes from fossil fuel, how could you possibly make synthetic oil? Well, you know, this has been a fundamental, I think, problem in chemistry almost from the beginning, which is we have Organic and inorganic chemistry, and organic chemistry is largely about carbon. Well, it is not the case that certain chemicals are living or organic, and others are dead or inorganic. There's just chemicals. And the chemicals can be combined in various structures which are conducive to life, and they can be created synthetically. Uh, and it's still just chemicals. Although life is not the chemicals. Mm. structures that our life require certain chemical formulations and they can be manufactured. Uh, Mendeleev, who was the guy who came up with the atomic chart that everybody learns in chemistry 101, uh, believed that oil was abiotic. And they demonized him, the global warmers demonized him because he also then went to work for the oil companies. He was very successful in helping them find oil. Because he didn't, he was not under the misimpression that oil was created by sedimentary rock. He knew better, and was smarter. It was pretty much of a genius to be able to come up with that atomic 
chart when he did in the 1800s, 1850s or so. And so, again, the true science here is completely at odds mm. with the current ideological nonsense that you're being taught as climate change. And if people were not susceptible to these lies, which basically human psychology is susceptible, it's easier to lie to people than to tell them the truth. You know, it's some of the most convincing people are pathological liars. They learn how to be very convincing. And this is a, this is a mass a delusion that you know, there's something wrong with hydrocarbon, something wrong with the, the air we exhale. It's carbon dioxide. So it's almost, it's almost self-loathing in the whole premise. What role did um, families like Rockefeller? Well, they, I don't think Rockefeller really cared whether the oil was abiotic or made from fossil fuels. He couldn't have cared less. He came from another era when it was the great building of these trusts, these you know, consolidations of industries. And Rockefeller entered into the oil business before there were uh, was a big demand for oil. Uh, you've got to remember that oil used to percol percolate up in the soil in places like Oklahoma, just bubbled. To the, it's Beverly Hillbillies begins with you know oil bubbling to the surface of the earth. What happened? And they used to burn it off the fields. They thought it was destroying their ability to grow crops, which it did. It was, it was wasteful. It was useful. Useless. They had no use for the oil. But around again the 1850s. You know, the industrial age got to a point where we were moving from coal and figuring out ways to use oil in combustion. The original um, industrial revolution started with coal. And as we moved to oil, remember, the uh, ships were sailing on coal. It was really Winston Churchill, the admiralty, you know, who introduced oil as the predominant fuel of the British Navy. It didn't happen until, uh, you know, the World War One era and afterwards. So when Rockefeller was getting his, he, he just said, I'm going to invest in this oil. And he bought up as much of the oil contracts as he yet. He owned huge amounts of available oil worldwide by simply buying it up at cheap prices. And so when oil turned out to be as valuable as it was, he cornered the market, which was the key strategy. And, you know, Rockefeller did it with steel, uh, with oil. Carnegie did it with steel. Uh, Vanderbilt did it with railroads. This was the period of the trust builders. So I don't think, I don't think Rockefeller thought very much about where the oil came from. He, as long as he could buy the rights to it, he was happy to have it. Mm. And I think most petrogeologists worldwide uh, don't spend a lot of time they just want to find oil. And, you know, they, uh, up until recently, pediment, you know, sedimentary rock was where you look because you couldn't drill so deeply. Technology wouldn't get down that deep. The deeper you get, the more heat and pressure there is. So the drilling has to be more sophisticated. You know, if you're going to drill five or 6,000 meters into the earth, you've got technical problems to do that which the technology in the 1800s couldn't handle. And since no one had been using this oil, there was plenty of it, loose, you know, low-hanging low, low fruit that was just on the trees. 
So that's they just went and got it. Nobody worried about where it came from. And they were happy to do oil distilleries. So they knew a lot about the technology of oil um, and how to distill it into various forms of fuel. And none of those involved any incantation where you throw in some living parts. They know they understood the chemistry of distillation, but the chemistry of oil creation of hydrocarbon fuels was not investigated seriously until these uh, Weimar Fisher Trops chemists were tasked to do it. Government wanted it done. Go figure out how to make its oil. Got all this coal, make it into oil. And then they did. They, they were brilliant. And, they, and I, I've seen the equations. I put the rudiments of the, occasion, of the equations in here. It, it's, a, it's a complicated process. It involves a um, turning the uh, coal into a gaseous form and then putting it through a catalytic process where you've got something that contains carbon and something that contains oxygen. And those do not have to be organic. Anyone knows the Fisher Trops process? You can take, you can take. Um, in fact, they've done this with using the Fisher Trops equations. We've synthesized oil, what they called diamond anvil experiments, without using any biological material at all. And that's where they create this apparatus, the diamond anvil, that is intense pressure, intense heat. They find something with carbon, something with oxygen. And a catalyst. Catalyst does not have to be iron. There's many catalysts that work. And um, they synthesize oil in a laboratory. And you, that's, that's there are many, I, I cite the experiments in this book where they've done that. And um, they're written up in credible scientific journals. People, you know, anyone who studies hydrocarbon fuels without their ideological blinders on can find out what I found out. I'm not a chemist. I wasn't trained as a chemist. I basically didn't take science courses in school because I didn't like the way they were taught. I thought it was a waste of time because they were teaching nonsense. And, you know, more recently it's gotten better, but it's still very heavily ideological. If oil is not a scarce resource like we've been told, then is it? paradoxically plentiful. Yes, it's plentiful. Uh, Julian Simon made the distinction, which I think is appropriate. He said, uh, the Earth is not infinite because obviously there's a limit to what's on the Earth. So it's finite. But he said, he had a category where if something was finite and you're going to run out of it. Infinite, you'd never run out of it. And he said, it's not finite. Okay, which is the negation of the concept finite, but not the embracing of the concept of infinite. Okay, by, what by that he meant, it was so plentiful that we would not run out of it before we found alternatives that were easier to use. Okay, and I often say, look, if you had a solar battery the size of a flashlight battery, and you could store enough solar or wind energy that you could hit heat heat or light a city with that one battery, you wouldn't have to have government subsidies. Private industry would produce those all over the place. They don't exist because solar and wind are not that powerful, can't be stored, etc. There's physical limitations to what you can do in the 
physics and the chemistry of solar or wind. You can put a solar panel on your house and generate some electricity, but don't try to um, provide solar to supply electricity to Los Angeles because it won't work. They did that. Tried to have take huge sections in Nevada. Obama tried this in the Slendra era. Billions of dollars to his friends to see if they could get huge wind or solar farms to power law. It doesn't work. And they could have known that to begin with. So we today are looking at things like um, smaller nuclear energies, you know, smaller plants. We run the U.S. Navy on nuclear power. We don't use coal anymore. It's, again, a Julian Simon principle. We found a more powerful alternative energy and went to it. And nuclear power, and it can be safe, and it can be. The U.S. Navy's proved that. We could have small installations of nuclear facilities that would be relatively safe and not cause huge disasters if they went awry. And probably the next technology will be fission. Fission is probably the most abundant source of energy. You know, I used to remember I was teaching when I first got out of graduate school um, at a small experimental school up in New Hampshire. And I said, look, you know, if you take a leaf from a tree, there's more energy in this leaf than you can imagine. The kid said, what do you mean? I said, well, look, what holds the leaf together? What are the forces that make it work? Well, those forces we I can identify through fission. There are forces that give it identity, that hold it together. Now, those forces are released. It's an enormous amount of energy that's released. And if you can do fission effectively, harnessing that energy, and it's still difficult to do, we're still not able to do it on an economic basis, uh, and we're not even able to do it reliably yet, but we'll, we will get there. The, these are the truly inexhaustible sources of energy of the future. I look at the, I look at all the systems we have in the Earth right now and say it's absolutely insanity to go back to a pre-industrial era because we want to destroy capitalism. Every highway we've got in the world is obsolete because it's not AI. It, it doesn't have, you know the wiring, the electronics in it that we could use to make it truly an efficient highway. There'll be propulsion systems and the like, which will make travel uh, much quicker between destinations, much safer. And we need to be working on that horizon, which is where you want to unleash private enterprise to get there. They'll accomplish it rather than shut it down. But this idea that we're going to run out of fuel never happened. The idea that we're going to destroy the planet by burning hydrocarbon fuels is also silly. We should burn them cleanly. And, of course, we're burning catalytic converters and other things. We're burning hydrocarbon fuels today much cleaner than we were in 1950 when smog from uh, internal combustion engines in London and Los Angeles were producing unsafe environments to breathe. We don't do that as, anymore the way we did. And, and people are unaware of what the smog conditions were like in London at the end of World War II or in Los Angeles. And we can burn these fuels cleanly. We should be burning them. We should be stimulating industrial activity. We should be, instead of letting these agreed head World Economic Forum uh, post-humanists, you know, whose 
big guru is this guy named Harari. Mm. Goes around saying there's too many useless people around and we'll let them play video games and give them drugs. They're, they're actually now supplying machines in the United States that will dispense drugs or to keep the people happy. They don't have any use for the people because they are not imagining a world in which human beings are the, are the true scarce and important resource, human intelligence. They don't value human intelligence. Mm. So they value their own intelligence as becoming demigods. My wife and I just got back today from a few days um, in the bush. We were in the mountains somewhere and we had, we could only get there uh, with a four by four. And I was thinking while we were driving, there's no possible way that we could have done that with a battery powered car. No way. <laughs> um, first of all, the battery powered cars, another silly idea. Okay. The batteries uh, in these cars can weigh up to 2,000 pounds. Producing these cars, the average price of an electric vehicle is about $64,000. It costs $20,000 if you need a new battery. Batteries wear out. They've they got lithium in them, which is also expensive to mine. Usually takes hydrocarbon fuels to mine it. Mine somewhere in Africa, which pollutes the environment, but who cares? That's Africa. And although we don't care what happens in Africa and um, you're using virtually slave labor to do it. So we don't care about that either. So now you've got a, a electric vehicle made and about every three hours, you've got to at least partially recharge it. Now you can just do partial recharges, but you got to wait until the car ahead of you is recharged before you can recharge. The amount of time it takes to fill up a car with gasoline is a few minutes, a very few minutes. It's uh, magnified by a factor of 100, let's say. So you're going to be spending 20 minutes instead of spending, you know, two minutes. Or, you know, you spend a, that's a factor of 10, but you're going to have a much longer wait. So you got this long line of cars all waiting, all running out of electric fuel while they're waiting to recharge. And we don't have enough recharge stations built. And then the cars have manufacturing problems or mechanical problems. Their batteries wear out. Where are we going to deposit all these batteries because they're environmental waste? Uh, we have to produce new lithium. There's not enough lithium available. There's not enough of these rare min minerals that go into producing these vehicles available to make very many of them. So California can say by 2030, everybody's got to have an electric vehicle. Well, that's going to mean a lot of people are without cars because they won't be available. Would 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 Elon Musk disagree with you? No, Musk Musk himself knows that Tesla was a great idea because it was a, a fad. I mean, he, this was an investment idea. I'm not even entirely sure Tesla that Musk believes in the in the Tesla any longer. I think he knows it's a joke, and um, he's made it trendy and he's made it you know fad and he, he's quite frankly made a lot of money capturing an idea. And with uh, technology, I think he himself is not particularly committed to. I, I guarantee you he's not powering his rockets into space with electric energy generated um, by the sun or the wind or something else. It's not stored in a battery. It's, it's combusted. And he knows that. You know, he's, he's not a stupid guy, although he's perfectly happy to make money on other people's stupidity. 
<laughs> and I guess you can't hold that against them. You, you're being cynical, though, because you might have these recharge stations everywhere in the next decade or so. Well, what are we going to do getting to the next decade? You know, and and how many, how much hydrocarbon fuels are we going to use to get there? Mm. And, you know, why is that okay and not going to destroy the planet when burning hydrocarbon fuels to heat your house is going to destroy the planet? So they're happy to expend hydrocarbon fuels so they don't, so they get rid of hydrocarbon fuels and not discuss how they're manufacturing the batteries because, of course, it's electric. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, well, you probably got to drive the thing 30 or 40 or 50,000 miles before you're past the curve of the hydrocarbon fuels you used to produce it. And, you know, the these vehicles are, are um, they're, they're slicker than they were used to be. They're better designed. Um, they, you, you, as I say, you can't have a solar panel on your house and it can work. Few people can have electric vehicles. Hybrids actually make more sense because they're fueling the battery while the car is on hydrocarbon fuels and you don't need to stop at a charging station. But the idea of these charging stations, which is a derivative idea from a fuel pump, gas pump, um, a gas pump works because I said it only takes a few minutes to pump your car full of gas. You get 20 gallons, you get 20 gallons pumped in that car in a couple minutes. Mm. And uh, that's not going to happen with electric. Yeah, again, it, it's reducing us back to a primitive stage of, mm. of energy use. And again, these are there are clear reasons why this happens. If you've got a um, hydrocarbon generation of electricity, and you say we're, we're going to mandate by law that 20 or 30 percent of this electricity has to be generated by wind or solar. Now you've got to have a backup hydrocarbon system that you can kick online when there's no sun shining or there's no wind blowing or you've run out of what you had stored in the batteries. And that's less powerful to begin with. Mm. And so, you know, the, the switching and they having these causes glitches and you're really wanting everybody to use less energy so you know the movement now is going to be to ration energy which again as i say is consistent with the political objectives of this world economic forum group of course they're not planning on rationing their use of hydrocarbon fuels they're still going to be flying around in their private jets they're not going to mix with the hoi polloi in the public part of an airport, they're going to go to the private airport and get um, served martinis while they wait to get on board their private jets, which so are not again, which are not battery powered. Which are not. There's no wind turbine on top of that that jet, mm. and there's no battery providing its fuel. And um, you know the other problems are uh, the batteries catch fire. A lot of other physical re limitations to what you can do with lithium storage. And um, uh, it, it is not a, it's a, it's a politically driven agenda. Yeah. It's not a scientifically driven agenda. As I say, if you've truly had a powerful battery, 
that could store solar energy, you know, the size of a flashlight battery, who wouldn't use them to power a city? You know, we would definitely go that route because it would be even cheaper energy than we have today. The fact is that today, with the still abundance of hydrocarbon fuels, specifically oil and natural gas, and natural gas now can be liquefied, which again eases its transport. And, you know, Gazprom is not liquefying natural gas. They're sending the natural gas through the pipelines. Mm. But we ship in cargo ships in, in these grand, big transport ships, liquefied natural gas all over the world. And it's downloaded. That's a new technology. The technology for hydrocarbon fuels has been well-developed and works because the oil companies make great profits on it. And uh, then the governments now want to say, well, we're going to take the windfall profits away from them. You know, the, the governments are fundamentally anti, they're fundamentally socialist. And this whole communism has really infected the world so that we don't understand the value of economic activity or investment or how important it is to stimulate a standard of living that can provide for an abundant world. And, you know, the thinking that we're doing, the thinking we're engaging in today is, is, is self-inflicted, it's suicidal. But we're walking into our own suicide. That's the whole goal of this climate change movement, to have us rush willingly into um, energy suicide because we're deluded to think that's the only way we'll survive. When, in fact, the only way we'll survive is to uh, get these global warmers and tell them to um, either go back to school or, or, you know, we're not listening to them anymore. They mm. can still, they can still talk, but listening to this, listening to the ideological science, the IPCC, and debating with these group, these people, is a um, mind-numbing process. <laughs> Very. Because, yeah, they. They are not willing to be honest, and they're constantly trying to find a disinformation reason to, um, you know, so for everything that it, disinformation works by, every time somebody tries to tell the truth, you find a reason to make people doubt that. Okay, so um, when someone basically, like I'm arguing, that, you know, oil is not fossil fuel, since they can't refute me, what they try to do is either ignore me or shut me up. That's why, the, that's why they don't want this book read and they don't want to debate with me because they know they'll lose the debate. I mean, even coast to coast in the 1990s, when I wrote my first book, it was actually 2005, 2006, I debated with Michael Rupert on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. And I was arguing fossil fuel, and he was arguing, I was arguing that fossil fuel is nonsense, it's, it's abiotic. He was arguing fossil fuel, and they did a very informal survey afterwards, not scientifically, but I won the debate. And uh, Rupert was shocked and angry. He didn't question why his arguments had failed. And um, if you go back and listen to that, and I've gone back and listened to it even recently, 
I was trying to be very gracious to him. I was trying to say, you know, basically I was not demonizing him. I was just saying I disagree with your science and respectfully so. But they've always demonized me or anyone who would dare to question, you know, that oil is fossil fuel. I still get demonized by the petrogeologists or locked into this. The textbooks, I bought a few textbooks recently. They're still talking about um, oil being fossil fuel. Government still has, you know, the energy department still has fossil fuel websites. It is the uh, established narrative that people just unconsciously accept. Even though it originally derived from dinosaurs, well, they they started in the 90s saying, well, we don't, they knew there were enough, and I could say, how many dinosaurs does it take to make a barrel of oil? And so they didn't want to answer that question. So they said, well, it was really um, bi biological material, plants, plankton, any biologic material they would say could produce oil. They, they knew that they couldn't support it on dinosaurs. And dinosaurs were around for 100 million years, but you know, they didn't die in big enough heaps except for maybe in the, you know, Sambria, the tar pits out in Los Angeles and places like that, or in great catastrophes. But the point is, they all deteriorated. We have Every one of the fossils we have of a dinosaur, it's very, very rare that we even find a fossil with the skin of the animal on it, even though that will be silicon fossilized, mm. because it, the deterioration process is very quick. I mean, you know, when someone dies and the life is out of them, they begin decomposing almost immediately. It's almost an instant process. It's a, it shuts down because mm. there's no energy stimulating the activity of the cells. On the battleground, where are you positioned? Well, I, I increasingly think that things I am writing won't be read or appreciated until after I'm gone. I'm increasingly writing with that perspective in mind and anticipating that um, it's almost it's too frustrating even to expect, you know, before 20 years ago, we could create a controversy and get on television or on, you know, like we did with John Kerry, one of my first big books, which was, um, Unfit for Command with John O'Neill. We questioned Kerry's bona fides in the Vietnam War. And that was a topical. Today, that would be ignored. Mm. Back then, they tried to discredit us, which gave us attention. They figured out that was a bad strategy. So now the strategy is simply marginalize us and ignore us. And then call you a conspiracy theory. And other terms the left creates to discredit you. So, you know, I'm characterized that way. Now, again, those who actually read what I'm writing or follow me, whatever, um, and, and take the time to understand it, uh, are generally, you know, pretty appreciative. And I, I'm calling this next, this trilogy I'm writing, this, this book on the truth about energy, global warming, and climate change is the first of the three. The second will be the uh, truth about Neo-Marxism, cultural Maoism, and anarchy. And the third one will probably have a title that involves 
uh, transhumanism and the truth about that and artificial intelligence, etc. But the, the point is, I'm calling it the Great Awakening Trilogy. I think we're at a point in human history where to survive as a species, we're going to have to conquer this fault of uh, being susceptible to popular delusions and to um, understand that they're easier to propagate than the truth. And we're going to have to start uh, understanding that uh, free speech, the challenging of ideas, is essential because it continues to um, demand that those of us who want to postulate a proposition are subject to having to defend that against intelligent attack. And again, the only way you can test the validity of ideas is to see if it works, and you're not going to do that. You know, you, the first thing you do when you build an, a ship, the Navy, you take it out for a sea trial because you know it's broken. Like you never sailed it at all, but if it's built, it's broken. You want to find out how it's broken so you can fix it. You've got to test it. And that test is a process of questioning and, um, you know, proving the validity. Um, Thomas Kuhn, his book on paradigms, I think correctly established that scientific paradigms go out of vogue when there's new evidence which doesn't fit into the paradigm. And I think we're, you know, at the edge of beginning to understand more about relativity theory and quantum mechanics, which will fundamentally change our concept of reality. And again, perhaps when we reach that threshold, we don't um, have World War III and engage in a thermonuclear war that destroys human civilization as we know it, uh, we could we could advance into a uh, a more um, enlightened or a more uh, you know a period of time in which we were essentially essentially valuing intelligence. I think it also has to value God. So I don't think it's possible to understand human existence or the structure of the reality in which we live without posit positing God. And that's that's again. Back to Genesis, back to the, you know, human beings. It's one of the fundamental um, design faults is the human beings can't see God, so we don't believe he exists. Or that's certainly a, um, a theme, that, you know, good and evil, um, good, the understanding of good has, postulates the, the understanding of evil. You can't have good if you don't also have evil. And so, therefore, they, uh, that dichotomy in ideas has to be understood. And um, I think we've done a lot with people like Wittgenstein and the like to pursue these ideas, but we're nowhere near where we will be when we understand relativity theory to understand the nature of reality that we're living in is really spiritual. It is not physical. It appears physical. It isn't. We're going to have to deal with phenomenon like what Einstein called... Um, you know, spooky action at a distance. Mm. We have to deal with the nature of physical reality that is tied together in ways that are not physical. Mm. We're going to have to deal with um, understanding 
intractal math processes that are nanoscale, but yet operate by very intricate procedures, which the farther down you go, the more you get into pure energy and string theory. So in the very final analysis, our physical reality is made up of energy. And it is not tangible in the sense you would normally consider tangible. So physical reality at deeper, deeper levels remains with the same complexity or more, has rules which may be a little bit different, and is, is less and less physically obvious. Now you can begin with the fact that your body processes operate without your conscious reality. And they operate in very intricate rules, which we now understand through getting a better handle on how cell chemistry works. The processes going on in the body that are beyond current human comprehension mm. in their, in their in intricacy. Mithrochondria, I mean, I could, I could list a whole set of phenomenon that occur in the body, even, you know, some of the issues we've had to cope with in uh, COVID, some of the issues that these RNA modifying vaccines represent. And again, these are issues that people are not really willing or able to study, you know, these, but they get down to the point I'm talking about, which is that um, the nature of our reality uh, is not physical. It appears physical. Where can I find your work? Well, if you go to the bookstores, they probably have it in the computer. They may hide this book behind the cookbooks in the back that they don't expect anybody to buy. They don't want you reading it. They don't want you buying it. Which is, uh, it, for those listening, that is the truth. Oh, yes. Here, I'll show it. And um, the truth this one about is, energy, global warming, and climate change. Yeah, exposing climate lies in an age of disinformation. And this is the hardcover. Now, we sold out all the hardcovers we printed. And so, therefore, we've, uh, we're going to take the hard, we're not going to print more. We'll now have the paperback available, and it'll be available very possibly only through the online stores Amazon, uh, Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. And um, it will, it, it's quite a good paperback version. It's, you know, basically the same book, but with a different, but yet very good cover. So it's not a, you know, cheap paperback. And we're doing that because, again, it, um, you know, this book, to print this book, for the printer to do this economically, this, they, you know, even discounted Amazon selling it for $27. Now, that's a lot of money for people to lay out for a book. And so I've wanted the paperback because it's just under $20. You know, that's going to be affordable for more people. Mm. And I want to get as many people to read this book as can. Uh, I'm not planning for this to be a huge moneymaker because it's not going to get the audience that it would demand. But uh, it's an important book in that eventually it will be read and understood, I believe. Although I expect right now, because it's so confrontative to this anti-capitalist ideological science agenda about global warming and climate change, demonizing carbon dioxide, that it will be, um, a lot of people just aren't, aren't gonna know about it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. 
Great pleasure to be with you, Jeremy. God bless. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.